According to Luke 24, 46, Jesus says, All things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms refer to the threefold division of the canon of the Hebrew Scriptures. This division is commonly known as the Tanakh, an anagram made from the first letter of the three divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures. T, Torah, or the law, the N, Nevaim, or the prophets, and the K, Ketuvim, or the writings. The writings are sometimes referred to as the Psalms, as it is the most significant portion. Ezra the scribe was responsible for collecting the inspired books and ordering them as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. Jesus' use of this phrase, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, shows his acknowledgment of the canon of the Hebrew Scriptures, otherwise known as the Old Testament. The 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures are actually 22 scrolls. The law is comprised of five scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. The prophets are comprised of six scrolls, Joshua, Judges, one scroll, Samuel and Kings, one scroll, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the twelve minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi form one scroll. The writings are comprised of ten scrolls, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Solomon, Ruth, Lamentation, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, that's one scroll, and Chronicles, one scroll. As Jesus explained, the law, the prophets, and the writings testify of him. His birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and future reign. There are over 456 verses in the Hebrew Scriptures containing prophecies about the Messiah. Many of those prophecies are about Christ's birth. Using this threefold division of the Hebrew Scriptures, we as believers can view Christmas through the lens of the Hebrew Scriptures. For example, Christmas in the law focuses upon four prophecies, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the scepter of Judah, and the star of Jacob. The seed of the woman foretells that Jesus would be born of a virgin. The seed of Abraham foretells that Jesus would be born as the promised son who came to redeem humanity. The scepter of Judah foretells that Jesus would be born as the king and the lawgiver. The star of Jacob foretells that Jesus would be born as king and as the embodiment of the Shekinah in human flesh. The prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures continue in the writings. Notably, the writings focus on two prophecies, the Son of God and the 70 weeks. So let's take our Bibles to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Christmas in the writings begins in Psalm 2-7 with the prophetic decree of the Son of God. The Son of God, Psalm 2-7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, Psalm 22 is one of the royal psalms. Psalm 18, Psalm 20, Psalm 21, Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 101, Psalm 110, Psalm 132, Psalm 144. All of these are royal psalms. And royal psalms are psalms whose content 
focuses upon the Davidic line of kings, notably the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus the Messiah. And the kingly nature of Psalm 2 is identified in verse 2 with the title, His Anointed. Now the term anointed, Messiah, often translated as Messiah. The term is used in the Hebrew scriptures of the Davidic kings. God's kings were anointed with oil to demonstrate their calling and consecration. And while there were many messiahs or anointed ones in the Hebrew scriptures, they all pointed to the promised messiah who would uniquely serve as king. Matthew's gospel is a record of, quote, Jesus the messiah, or literally Jesus the anointed king. Indeed, following Jesus' birth, the wise men arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. In Psalm 2 7, the psalmist declares, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now, the Lord's decree is a single, all encompassing plan. The decree controls and guides all events for God's glory and the good of his people. God does not adjust his plan on account of the events of human history. Indeed, he freely and independently establishes his decree. And while God's decree is a single, all-encompassing plan, it manifests itself through various appointments. Though each appointment is distinct and manifests itself at different points in time, they are all part of God's decree, established in eternity past. And so in eternity past, that is, before time was created, God made a decree. And one appointment of that decree is found here in the second part of Psalm 2 and verse 7. He said to me, you are my son. Notice two parties are speaking. He said to me. Who are he and me? Now, me is obviously the psalmist, the one who said, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Since the psalmist reveals Yahweh's decree, he, re he refers to Yahweh. However, since the decree was made in eternity past, me or the psalmist cannot be David. It cannot be any of his contemporaries. The me cannot refer to angels, since they were not created until the second day of creation. Nor can it refer to humans, as they were not created until the sixth day. Who then is the me? Again, Psalm 2, 2 declares, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Since he is the Lord, or Yahweh, then me is his anointed. His anointed is the Messiah. Hence, the Messiah is the psalmist of Psalm 2. And since the Messiah was with Yahweh in eternity past, he must be eternal. The only being that is eternal or timeless is God. You see, Yahweh is God, and the Messiah is God. You ask, well, how can this be? Because God is a uniplurality. 
Uniplurality means that there is a plurality within the Godhead, but this plurality acts as one. Hence, there is one God, but more than one person or being, that comprises this one God. Again, Yahweh decrees, you are my son. That is, the Messiah is his son. If the Messiah is the son, then Yahweh must be the father. This statement declares the relationship between Yahweh and Messiah. It is a father-son relationship. Now, while the term son, being, can refer to a male offspring of human parents, it can refer also to a member or person of the same class or category. Hence, decreeing that the Messiah is the Son of God does not underscore that he is God's offspring, but that he is of the same class or category as the Father. In other words, just as Yahweh is God, the Messiah is God. Being of the same class, they are equal in essence, character, and attributes. Decreeing that Messiah is Yahweh's son also expresses the voluntary submission of the second person to the first person of the Godhead. When Luke recorded Jesus' genealogical record, he writes in Luke 3.38, Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. Hence, as the son of God, Jesus is God and is equal to the Father in essence, character, and attributes. One of the fundamentals of the faith is the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, to deny that Jesus is God is to deny one of the fundamental facts of the faith. And to deny one of the fundamental facts of the faith is ultimately to deny the faith as a whole. You cannot remove one link in the chain without the whole chain falling apart. It is of the utmost importance that Jesus be God. If he is not God, then he is not Lord. He is not Savior. He is not the Messiah. And if he is not Lord, not Savior, not Messiah, then he is incapable of saving anyone from their sin. Now, what of the second aspect of this decree, declaring today I have begotten you? Much confusion and false doctrine have been propagated by a lack of knowledge and understanding of the term begotten. Begotten, yalad, should not be confused with only begotten, monogenes, as used in John 3.16. Only begotten, monogenes, means to be unique and without equal. It has nothing to do with birth. Begotten, yalad in Hebrew, or ganao in the Greek, means to bring forth. The phrase, today I have begotten you, refers to the day when God brought forth the Messiah, the Son, as the King, who will reign over the whole earth. The importance of this messianic prophecy cannot be underscored enough. 
Indeed, Jesus the Messiah is the Son of God. That he existed throughout eternity proves that he is God. That it was decreed that he was the Son and Yahweh the Father implies that though the second person and the first person of the Godhead are equal in essence, character, and attributes, the second person voluntarily submitted to the will of the first person, particularly in the accomplishment of humanity's redemption. As the Son of God, Jesus was never birthed. His deity is eternal. Though eternally God, it was decreed in eternity past that Jesus was appointed to be the messianic king who would be brought forth at a specific time or on a specific day. When was Jesus brought forth as king? He was brought forth as king at his incarnation. The term incarnation comes from the Latin version of the phrase revealed in the flesh, incarnate, in 1 Timothy 3.16. The incarnation refers to the second person of the Godhead assuming a human nature. John 1.14 records, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Gabriel explained the incarnation to Mary in Luke 1, 33 to, or 31 to 33 and 35. He says, beginning in verse 31 of Luke 1, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. You see, friends, the Holy Spirit created the human fetus within Mary's womb without male seed. And he infused the eternal Son of God into that human flesh. From that moment, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became the Son of Man. He remains 100% deity and 100% humanity with no diminishing of either nature. Christ dwells as the Son of God in human flesh for all eternity. And it was at the moment of the incarnation, the moment the deity was infused in human flesh, that the Son of God was begotten or brought forth as the king. Christmas in the writings continues in Daniel 9, 24 to 26. Daniel 9, 24 to 26, with the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Let's turn over to Daniel 9, 24 to 26. Beginning in verse 24. 70 weeks have been declared for your people and your holy city. So you are to know... And discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now the book of Daniel was written during the Jewish exile. 
the kingdom of Judah was carried off into captivity in 606 B.C. Among the captives was a young man by the name of Daniel. Despite his circumstances, Daniel continued trusting God and obeying him. And in turn, God providentially protected Daniel. When the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream that no one could interpret, God blessed Daniel with the interpretation. Daniel explained that the dream represented five Gentile empires and their fates. As a result, Daniel 2.48 reports, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Years later, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, became king. One night in 539 B.C., Belshazzar was hosting a feast when a mysterious hand appeared writing a message on the wall. Daniel was summoned to interpret when no one could decipher the message. Again, God blessed Daniel with the interpretation, explaining that Yahweh had judged Belshazzar, giving the kingdom of Babylon to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel 5, 30 and 31 reports that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Darius appointed Daniel as one of three men who oversaw the former Babylonian empire. He is approximately 82 years of age at this time. Daniel 6.3 reports, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. However, the other officials became jealous and drafted a law forbidding prayer to any god other than Darius. Daniel continued to obey God's law and prayed to Yahweh despite man's law. And because Daniel obeyed God, he was thrown into the lion's den. However, because he obeyed God, Yahweh closed the mouths of the lions and preserved Daniel's life. See, friends, it's always important to obey God regardless of what man may do. We must always obey God. Well, in 538 B.C., during the first year of Darius's reign, Daniel 9.2 reports that Daniel observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, since the captivity began in 606 B.C. and 68 years had elapsed at this point, Daniel knew that the 70-year captivity was drawing to an end. But Daniel was struggling to reconcile the end of the captivity with the previous visions revealing that three Gentile empires would come and go before Israel was restored to national existence. Daniel had to learn that the Babylonian captivity, the 70-year captivity, was symbolic of an extended dispersion or captivity. Daniel receives a new prophecy in Daniel 9 while praying and reading Leviticus 26, 40-45 and Deuteronomy 31-10. In both passages, it states that if Israel repents and turns to God, he will hear and restore them to their land. And so in his prayer, Daniel associates himself with sinning Israel. We have sinned and confesses that all that befell them was because they broke God's law. 
Now, according to Daniel 9, 21 to 23, Daniel says, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Daniel receives the following prophecy because he is highly esteemed by God. Highly esteemed Hamad means to be significantly favored or blessed. Daniel is vastly beloved by God because of his obedience to God's law. You know, interestingly, Gabriel also appeared to Mary. And when he appeared to her, Luke one twenty eight reports that Gabriel said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Favored, karatao, means to be esteemed or blessed. Mary was blessed or found favor with God because like Daniel, she was righteous or obedient to God's law. And because Mary was favored, God chose her to be how the Messiah would come into the world. And because God favored Daniel, he was chosen to be the one to announce when the Messiah would come into the world. You see, in Daniel 9.24, Gabriel reveals, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. The term weeks, subua, is a period of seven. It could be seven days, seven weeks, or seven years, depending on the passage context. In this context, a week is seven years. Seventy weeks, then, is equivalent to 490 years. God has appointed 490 years to accomplish his plan for Israel. Gabriel continues the prophecy in Daniel 9, 25 to 26, stating, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now the prophecy reveals the time frame of these 490 years. 490 years begins with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Artaxerxes issued this decree in 457 B.C. Next, the prophecy reveals two periods, seven weeks and 62 weeks. The seven weeks equals 49 years. The 62 weeks equals 434 years. Combine these two groups of weeks equal 483 years. After 483 years transpired, the Messiah would be revealed. And indeed, the Messiah would be revealed 483 years after 457 B.C. in A.D. 26. Now, how does this prophecy foretell the timing of Jesus' birth? Well, Jewish people knew the 490 years would begin in 457 B.C. They also knew that the Messiah would be revealed in A.D. 26, 483 years after 457 B.C. Now, Psalm 110, verse 4 prophesies that the Messiah would be a priest. The psalmist wrote, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A Jewish priest could not begin his ministry until 30 years of age. According to Luke 3.23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Since the Messiah was a priest and began his priestly ministry at age 30, one needs only to subtract 
30 years from A.D. 26, which places his birth at 5 B.C. Jesus was born in the fall of 5 B.C. Two facts establish the date of his birth. Herod the Great died in the spring of 4 B.C. Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath and did not return to Bethlehem until after his death. Hence, if Herod the Great was king when Jesus was born and died the following year in 4 B.C., then Jesus had to be born in the fall of 5 B.C. Luke 2.22 reports that eight days after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. While they were in the temple complex, there was a man who came to them named Simeon. Luke 2, 25-26, reports that Simeon was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, that is, the Messiah. Now, Simeon is introduced as a righteous and devout man. Righteous, the chaos, confirms that he was obedient to God's law. Devout, Eulebes, implies he's God-fearing. Simeon's obedience to God's law and God-fearing attitude is mentioned to contrast him with the other religious leaders of his day. This man was looking for the consolation of Israel. Looking, prostukamai, is waiting to welcome someone. It depicts an expectant hope. The one for whom, from whom Simeon is waiting is the consolation of Israel. Consolation. Paraclesis means comforter or encourager. Now in John 14, 16 to 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper that is the spirit of truth. Helper, paraclesis, is the same term as consolation in Luke 25. Another, alas, means of the same kind. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the same kind of helper or consolation as Jesus. Thus, the consolation of Israel, or the helper of Israel, is Jesus the Messiah. Simeon was waiting to welcome the Messiah because he knew the Messianic prophecies revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew from Psalm 110 that the Messiah would be a priest. Simeon knew from Daniel 9 that the Messiah would begin his priestly ministry in A.D. 26. Piecing together these two prophecies with the fact that a priest would not begin priestly service until the age of 30, Simeon knew the Messiah's birth was imminent. As Paul explains in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman. God blessed Simeon for his obedience and reverence, promising him, according to Luke 2.26, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. When Simeon saw the child in Luke 2.28 reports, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. Who is this child laying in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes? Christmas in the writings declares that he is none other than the Son of God in human flesh, Emmanuel. As God the Son, Jesus is not inferior to God the Father, but equal. As the Son, Jesus is of the same essence, character, and attributes as the Father. In a similar fashion, both because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are God, they are both divine comforters. In his birth, the Son of God took on an additional nature, a human nature. 
but he did not lose or diminish his divine nature. Both natures are now forever intertwined. The human nature does not diminish the divine, nor the divine diminish the human. With great anticipation, Simeon was waiting to welcome the Messiah. While waiting, he lived righteously and reverently. What a great example for you and me, folks. What a great example for believers today. Let's examine ourselves. Let's look at our lives. Are we waiting to welcome the Messiah? First and foremost, have you ever welcomed the Messiah into your life? Have you ever confessed your sins and received the Son of God as your Lord and Savior? Have you taken by faith That Jesus, the Son of God, died, shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sin, the remission of your sin, buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. Now if you've done that, if you've repented of your sin and believed the gospel, then you have welcomed the Messiah. But there's another welcome. Are you looking forward with great anticipation? Are you looking forward to welcome the Messiah on the day that he calls you into his presence? That day is coming. It may come in the form of death, absent from the body and present with the Lord. Or preventure, in our lifetime, it could come as the rapture. When Jesus descends in the cloud and calls us into his presence. Either way, Christian, you need to ask yourself, are you ready to welcome the Messiah? Are you living righteously and reverently? Let's consider that. Let's ask ourselves, are we truly living in anticipation of the Messiah's coming to rapture the church? That little babe wrapped in swaddling clothes is none other than the Son of God. The Son of God died for you, shed his blood for you, rose again the third day from the grave for you and me. Not only to forgive us of our sin, but to rescue us from the lake of fire. And that Son of God, who ascended into heaven, is one day going to descend from heaven again in the clouds and call us to himself. Friend, make sure that you're living righteously and reverently in light of his coming. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, through the name of Jesus Christ, we come into your presence. Father God, we praise you for prophecy. The prophecies revealed here in the writings. The prophecies of the Messiah's birth here in the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures. And Father, Lord, as we considered these two prophecies, the prophecy of the Son of God, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, I pray, Lord, that it causes us to pause in wonder. That, Father, in eternity past, you laid down a plan and worked that plan before ever creating anything. That, Lord, in eternity past, you had the foresight, the wisdom, the counsel, the knowledge, the understanding to set all of these things in order. And I would ask and pray, Lord, that we would be caught again in wonder of these great truths. That, Father, there are so many prophecies. If one man just did ten of these things, Father, it would be a wonder. But no, Lord, your Son, our Savior, did 300, fulfilled 300 of these prophecies in his first advent, beginning with his birth. 
Oh, Father, I pray that you'd forgive us. Forgive us for losing our sense of wonder. Forgive us for this ho-hum attitude. Forgive us for being so caught up in everything else that we've lost sight of the true meaning of Christmas, the true celebration of your son's birth. Father, I pray that we would see that babe in our nativity scenes, that little babe wrapped in swallowing clothes, as not simply just another child, but as the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Godhead, now clothed in human flesh, forever deity and humanity intertwined in one person, yet one nature never diminishing the other nature. Father, I thank you that in the fullness of time, at the appointed time, your son came forth. That man Simeon was waiting and watching. And Father, I pray that like Simeon, we would be watching and waiting for the next appointed time. Not the appointed time of his birth, but the appointed time of his return to rapture the church. And Father, I pray that in light of that coming, in light of his rap the rapture, Lord, may we live righteously and reverently. We give you all the praise, Lord. We give you praise today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen.